you'll open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in verse, well, I want to begin in verse 31 actually and read all the way through verse 45. There is a tough fibrous root that reaches down into the very core of the human heart. That fibrous weed, that, that root that really resonates from deep within our soul is always clamoring for more, for bigger, for better, for recognition, and for prominence. And we find that even in the best of the in the best of us, there is that insatiable longing to be heard, to be made known, to be recognized, to be important. It's that, that very tendency that Jesus deals with in this passage before us this morning. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 31, but the But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be be delivered to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." I want to talk with you this morning about a peculiar kind of greatness, thinking about servanthood and the ransom death of Christ. I want you to notice in the opening section that we learn from Jesus what it means to live like you are dying. 
Because Jesus was very much aware, he was very cognizant as he made his way to Jerusalem that he was going to die there. You'll notice how verse 31 is usually situated with the previous passage as the concluding verse, and I think it is, but I think it's also a bridge, it's an introduction as well to the passage that we're getting ready to look at. In fact, if you'll read it again, follow along where I as I read it, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then if you go with me to verse 44, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Uh, This is Mark's way of helping us understand this is a passage about greatness. It's a passage about servant leadership. It's a passage about the greatest leader that has ever lived, and how although he should have been first, he was willing to be last. Although he should have been served, he was willing to become a servant. Although he should have been followed, he was willing to die. We're going to learn that greatness in the kingdom, it's, it's really a peculiar kind of, of greatness. In verses 31 through 35, we note that Jesus once again predicts that he's going to die. But it's verse 32 that strikes my attention. You'll notice that Jesus was walking on ahead of them as they're on their way to Jerusalem, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. So Jesus is out in front. He's walking to Jerusalem. He's he's headed to the site where he will be executed. He knows that there are dark days on the horizon. And the disciples, they're stunned, they're amazed that the one that they followed is still out in front. You would have thought he would have been dragging his heels. You would have thought that maybe he would have tried to find another route that would have kept him from going to Jerusalem. But they're stunned, they're amazed, they're flabbergasted that that there he is, headed to Jerusalem. He's out in front of them. They're the ones kind of dragging their feet. They're the ones that are a little bit unsure of what's ahead of them. They know there are storm clouds in the distance. They've heard the rumblings that there's going to be, there's going to be a crowd against Jesus, led by the religious leaders. And yet, they're very impressed by him. They themselves are afraid. And so he takes them aside, and in verse 33 and 34, we have the third passion prediction in Mark's gospel. The first one is in chapter 8. The second one that we looked at is in chapter 9. This is the third one. It's where Jesus predicts his death. As As I read it again, notice how specific it is. Notice how articulate he speaks it. Notice how, how clear he is about what's going to happen to him. And then when we get into chapter 15, the very things he prophesies here are the very things that come to pass down to the last bit of saliva that rolls off his cheek having been spat on by his enemies. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes. That word delivered is an interesting word. It carries the idea of betrayal. Someone close to me will betray me. Someone close to me will stab me in the back. Someone close to me is going to turn against me. You know, sometimes when that happens to us, we, we subconsciously think that it has never happened to anybody in the world but us. But Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be betrayed, to be turned on, to be stabbed in the back. And he's going to be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. And they're going to condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later he will rise again. This is the very opposite of what we think leadership looks like. In fact, we would, have, we would have qualified him as a failure, an abysmal failure. Rather than leading a revolution that, that, that would unseat the Romans, he himself will be crucified by the Romans. And all of these things that he's been doing as he feeds the poor and casts out demons and heals the sick and, and preaches these magnificent sermons... He's done in light of his impending death. Notice he continues to march forward knowing that he's going to die, but he's ministering and serving and and caring for those around him. And no sooner do the words fall from his lips than the disciples demonstrate that they misunderstand what he's talking about. The disciples demonstrate what it means to live like you think you know best and deserve more. In verses 35 and 37, James and John step forward. James and John were two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, two of the first four disciples that followed Jesus in Mark 1, 16 through 20. They left behind a thriving fishing business in order to to follow Jesus. They loved Jesus. They sacrificed a significant portion of their life to be with Jesus. They hooked their wagons to Jesus because they believed him to be the Messiah and they believed that he was going places. And so it's not that they didn't love him, they just didn't fully understand him. You see, this this fibrous root that reaches down deep into the human heart is found even in the heart of those who truly deeply love Jesus and want to follow him. But this this weed will regularly raise its head and clamor for more. It wants more. It wants recognition. It wants acclaim. It It wants its place in glory. And so they approach Jesus. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You'll know in the past, I've made reference to this verse before and, and, uh, and commented on the fact that it sounds like my, my grandson will. He'll, he'll slip into my study when I'm up there sometimes and he'll say, Papa, I want to ask you to do something for me. 
And I'll say, William, what is it that you want Papa to do? He says, Papa, I just want you to say that you'll do it before I ask. And I'll say, sweetie, I can't say that I'll do it before you ask. What do you want me to do for you? Papa, please. Those big, dark Guatemalan eyes, they just, my wife says they just melt me into, into, uh, into uh, weakness. And so, all right, all right, how bad could it be? I'm thinking he's, he's, uh, he's just a little boy. He's not going to ask me to, to, to do something unreasonable. I'm like, can I play the iPad? And as he says it, he looks over his shoulder and he closes the door ever so quietly. And I'll say, well, you know, what, what, what's mama say? Papa, I'm not asking mama. I'm asking you. And so I'll say, where's mama? She's down with Mimi. Lock the door. And so that's why they sound like my, they sound like my grandson. And so Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? You know, that's a, that's a penetrating question that goes beyond its context. It's a beautiful question to ask oneself whenever they come before Jesus in prayer. Yes, what is it that I really want him to do for me? And why do I want him to do it? And so they're, they're, they're very comfortable with Jesus at this point in his ministry. They're very familiar with Jesus. And so they're they just going to articulate it just the way that they think it. Grant that we may sit, one on your right, one on your left, in your glory. They still haven't fully grasped the significance of why he came. They don't really understand his heart the way that they think they understand it. It must have been a little bit painful for him to have spent almost three years with them, and, and now he's on, the, he's on the verge of entering Jerusalem for the final week of his life before he's crucified, and they're asking him for thrones because they want to be in a strategic place when he establishes his kingdom. They res- Jesus responds, you don't, you don't know what you're asking, Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath and being baptized in suffering. Are you able to suffer like I suffer? They don't understand it that way, though. They said, we're able. We're able. Well, they would experience something of the suffering that he experienced with the exception of it being efficacious, with the exception of it being salvific in nature. James is going to be martyred, and John's going to be exiled to to Patmos. They're going to suffer, but they don't understand what they're asking him. Turn with me to chapter 15 and verse 27. Chapter 15 and verse 27. As Jesus is being taken to Golgotha to be crucified. It says in chapter 15, verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Grant that we may sit one on your right, one on your left in your glory. Now, if you were in a Bible study in Rome, you wouldn't have had your own copy of the Gospel of Mark. It would have been read to you. 
And probably the first time you heard it read, you wouldn't have picked up on anything. Second time, maybe nothing. Third time, you, you begin to think, I, I've, heard that, I've heard that reference, one on the right, one on the left, one on the right, one on the left. Here he is on, at Golgotha, one on the right, crucified, one on the left, crucified. And then your mind would begin to drift back to James and John on the road to Jerusalem. Grant that we may sit, one on your right, one on your left, in your glory. Their concept of glory and Jesus' concept of glory was very different concepts. Jesus glorified God by hanging on a cross after having been beatily, after having been brutally beaten. The disciples were looking for thrones and ministerial perks that come when you reach a place of, of prominence. Jesus tells them in verse 38 through 40, they are going to drink the cup he drinks. They're going to be baptized with the baptism with which he is baptized. But, uh, but it's going to be a baptism of not salvation but of suffering. And then he goes on beginning in verse 41 through verse 45 to teach them about true servant leadership. True servant leadership isn't concerned about thrones, it's concerned about character. True servant leadership isn't concerned with perks, it's concerned with service. And so he says in verse 41, Mark, the ten... The other disciples, they hear the request of James and John and they become indignant. They're not offended for Jesus. They're offended because they themselves had been looking for the, for the good seats. They'd been waiting for the right opportunity. They had been looking for that special and particular moment when they could ask, hey, could I sit on your right or your left in your, in your glory? And James and John, they, they beat him to the punch. And then in verse 42, Jesus begins to give them instructions. He calls them to himself. He says, I want everybody to gather around. It's like a quarterback speaking in the huddle. Like a point guard gathering, the, gathering them around. And he says in verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. This is the way things work in the world. The way things work in the world is you step on people. You push them out of the way. You overwhelm them with your personality and knowledge. You do whatever it takes to get the next, up on the next rung of the ladder. That's the way that it works in the world. And their great men exercise authority over them. That is, they get themselves in a position that they can get the perks and the privileges of leadership with very little concern about how it affects those around them. Because the only thing that matters is their ideas get implemented. And they get the position that they deserve. But then he says, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Notice there's nothing long, wrong with desiring greatness in the kingdom, but the way to greatness in the kingdom is the way of service. 
read most of the books on leadership, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, and I think you'll find it very, very few ever talk about servant leadership. Very few ever talk about caring for those that you are responsible for and trying to serve them and make them better and stronger. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. He's saying the same thing from two slightly different perspectives in verse 43 and 44. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be willing to be last. But that's not what you hear in leadership conferences. That's not what you find in leadership books. But that's what you find from our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that these men didn't love Jesus. They just didn't understand Jesus. But there comes a point when your understanding has to be commensurate with your love. And for those of us with a Bible, we know what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to lead by serving. Let me see if I can make it a little bit more practical for us. They wanted to lead by lording. Jesus wants them to lead by serving. This attitude of servanthood should begin in our home. We believe that the Bible teaches that men are to be leaders in their home. That means the husband should be the chief servant in the home. He should be the foot washer. He should be the initiator in servant leadership. He should be willing to put his wife's needs before his needs and her desires before his desires. He's to be the spiritual point man. You say, why are you picking on us men? Because you've assumed the mantle of leadership. And nobody said sanctification would be easy. If you can't lead in the home, how can you lead in the church? If you can't lead in the home, how can you lead in the world of, of politics or business or some other area? It begins in the home. Christ is looking for men that will be leaders in the home. Maybe the most difficult job in all the world is being a mom. There's certainly no more selfless responsibility in the world than being a mom. There's very few people in the world that sacrifice more than mothers do. But it's one thing to, to do it because you have to do it. It's another thing to embrace it because it honors God as you do it. Just as it would be appropriate for a husband to occasionally ask his wife, do you feel like I truly serve you? It would be appropriate for a mother to occasionally ask her children, do you feel like I, I genuinely serve you because I love you? Do you feel loved by me? Then on the job, 
even if we're not in a place of significant responsibility, we can be spiritual leaders by serving. What do I do? You try to make the person above you that you're responsible to successful. You pray for God's blessing on their work. You find ways to encourage them and to build them up and to support them and to, and to minister to them rather than trying to undercut them or usurp them or manipulate them. It's a peculiar kind of greatness that Jesus is asking us to emulate when we follow him. It's so different because there is this residual weed that permeates our heart that always wants more. But then we come to verse 45. Verse 45, it's, it's the exclamation point. It, it, it's, the, it's the consummate illustration of what he's saying. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man didn't come to manipulate and coerce. The Son of Man didn't come to to use people, but to serve people. And the ultimate service is that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life and teaching turns the worldly understanding of greatness and power on its head. The greatest work ever done was accomplished by one who gave his life for others. Self-giving service is the only greatness God recognizes. And there's no greater act of service than the service our Savior rendered for us when he died in our place. He uses a a striking metaphor, a gripping metaphor, when he uses the word ransom. He intends it to describe our predicament and his sacrifice. It's a term from the slave market. It's a term that would have resonated through the minds of every first century person because slavery was a, was a major ingredient in the first century world. And he says, we are all spiritual slaves. In the physical world, to ransom a slave was to pay for a slave in order to buy that slave and to set that slave free. This is suggesting that we were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Only we could not pay our own debt. We couldn't purchase our own freedom. Someone had to purchase our freedom by paying our debt. He had a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. Jesus' death is not a tragic accident. It's not a courageous act of martyrdom. It is a supreme act of sacrificial service for sinners condemned to eternal damnation. He makes it perfectly clear that we cannot save ourselves, but he died in our place. 
In light of his act of sacrificial service, how can we see greatness for ourselves? And how can we not love one who died so that we could be forgiven and set free? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's exactly what uh, the Lord's Supper reminds us of. It reminds us that we were slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. It reminds us that there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. It reminds us that we were in desperate need of a Savior and that Jesus died in our place that we could be saved from our sin. So as we, as we partake of the, of the bread and the juice in just a moment, the word that should resonate in our minds this morning is the word ransom. Like, a, like an echo through a valley. Ransom, ransom, ransom. What have we been ransomed from? We've been ransomed from slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. What have we been ransomed to? New life in Christ. You may be a guest with us today, and maybe you're wondering, Pastor, what's your church's policy about guests celebrating and participating in, in the Lord's Supper? If, you're, if you are a Christian seeking to walk with Jesus... Actively involved in an evangelical church, or maybe you've been actively involved and you've relocated and, and you're looking for a new church, a new church home. Even if you let's say you're taking three steps forward and two steps back, join the group. That's where most of us are. Most of us find ourselves in the process of sanctification, and it is a slow slog through a sinful heart. We'd invite you to participate with us today. If you don't know Jesus, I'd like you to think about this morning that Jesus wants to know you. And if you don't know Jesus, it's not because Jesus hasn't done everything possible so that you could know forgiveness of sin and newness of life. It's a choice that you've made. We'd ask you not to take the Lord's Supper this morning, but but to allow it to pass by, no one's going to be looking at you. you. You won't feel any embarrassment at all. Or, or maybe you're a member of Ninth and O, and you're just not walking with the Savior. We'd encourage you, don't, don't participate in, in the Lord's Supper. You're not, you're not ready, and you'll do it to your own detriment. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward, and the chairman of our deacons, Sean Veets, is going to assist me as we distribute the bread in just a moment. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the privilege that we have to be reminded of the servant leadership of Jesus as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and particularly that his death is a ransom to purchase those of us that were slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so resonate through our minds this morning the ransom death of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Men, if you'll come forward.
The Lord Jesus died in our place. That means that we were slaves in need of a Savior. When we could not save ourselves, He served us in the way that we needed to be served. We needed a ransom. And as you take this little piece of uh, bread, would you think about that thought? Take and eat. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you died in your son, that you died in our place, that he suffered on our behalf, that we could know forgiveness of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. The good news for the believer is that even if we had a little tussle on the way to church this morning, maybe we're in a difficult patch with a family member or a friend, the Lord Jesus died to secure our salvation. That doesn't mean that we don't need to ask forgiveness of those whom we offend and hurt, but it does mean that our salvation is secure. That there's nothing that we can do if we have been born again by the Spirit of God to undo what God did on our behalf. And with that, we can rejoice. Would you take, drink, and then stand? <laughs>